Well, as I mentioned earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, we're, we're looking at God's gospel plan for his church. Paul has a huge focus on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because the church represents something. It represents the wisdom of God. He alone has the wisdom to bring unreconciled people together in peace and to build them up, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language together into one body who is Christ. He's the head, the church on earth is his body, and he is building this body into a temple in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. That's pretty, that's pretty fabulous stuff. That's pretty fabulous stuff. Listen along as I read our passage of Scripture this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. This is the Word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of God. Well, as soon as we start reading, we have to stop. As soon as we start reading verse 1 in chapter 3, we have to stop because Paul begins by saying, for this reason. So we have to stop and ask, for what reason? The reason is because Gentiles have been brought near. Now, it's important that all people are dead in their transgressions, that they they who repent are, are, are people who are made alive in Christ through grace, by faith, and this is the electing love of God, but the theme that Paul's going to carry forward in this chapter is that believers from among the Gentiles are no longer strangers to God and aliens to God's household. They have been brought near in Christ. For this reason could just point to the very last verse of chapter 2, the the sentence right before the beginning of our reading today. In him, you Gentiles also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that's that's the platform from which Paul is about to dive into prayer. That's what he's about to do. But we need to note a couple of things as Paul gets ready to pray. 
because Paul doesn't waste any words. We want to we make sure we note this. First, he describes himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. So, so Paul is a prisoner in two ways. First, Paul is captive to Christ. Paul is a prisoner. Heart, soul, mind, and strength are completely captive to the call of Christ and the will of God. By grace, through faith, he is irrevocably bound to Jesus. We should want to be prisoners of Christ the same way Paul is. Second, there's a way we hope we will never be prisoners like Paul. Although we may be someday. Paul is literally under Roman arrest and in prison for obediently preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to these Gentiles. And in that way, he is a prisoner on their behalf because he was willing to risk earthly freedom so that he might be made alive through Christ's gospel and so that they might be made alive through his preaching to them of Christ's gospel. As you know, that is happening to believers in many countries in the world today. And think of your current events in China, in India, in several nations in Africa. It's happening in Afghanistan right now. People are being made prisoners for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because of their willingness to proclaim it so that others might be saved. There are 17 Christian missionaries who were kidnapped in Haiti on October 16th who are still being held as prisoners for ransom. And none of us really wants to trade places with them, do we? Nonetheless, Paul is chained to a Roman guard. And while chained in prison, he's moved to write this glorious letter to the church for their benefit. It's a circulating letter. It's going to go to Ephesus and then it's going to be handed down to all of the towns and churches around Ephesus. And it's even going to be handed down and it's going to make its way through the centuries and circulate to us this morning. Now this sentiment in verse 1 is echoed in verse 13, if you want to look down. When Paul says, I am suffering for you, Paul is suffering imprisonment for the Gentiles. But Paul understands what we should understand. That as a prisoner for Christ, he's free. Isn't that amazing? What a paradox. On earth he's in prison, but as a prisoner of Christ, he's actually free. And that the gospel he proclaims remains unchained and full of God's power to make dead sinners alive in Christ, even if he's in prison. I said that Paul was getting ready to pray. But that thought, I'm suffering for you, causes Paul to interrupt his own prayer. You should see a a dash or a hyphen at the end of verse 1. Look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. There should be some kind of pause or a, or a line there that indicates Paul's change of direction. He will pray, but actually not until verse 14. Look down at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's, he is going to pray, but between, between verse 1 and verse 14, verses 2 to 13 are this digression. He just changes his thought. He goes off in another direction. So why does Paul pause his prayer and digress this way? Well, before they hear the words of prayer for them, Paul wants them to understand why he's so willing to joyfully suffer for them. 
Paul loves Jesus and he is obedient to Jesus, but suffering for preaching the gospel is not just a job for Paul. Paul actually has a heart filled with love and compassion for these Gentiles. It's personal. It's not just work. It's a labor of love and compassion and commitment. And that's what we see in Paul's heart here. We should have hearts like that too, don't you think? He also wants them to understand the plan of God and the grace of God, which are two themes that are just rife in these verses. He's going to reveal God's far-reaching plan for the church. He's continuing to reveal piece by piece the mystery of Christ to them. One piece is that the scope of the members of the church is going to be very, very broad. Broader than anybody ever thought, given the Old Testament scriptures. It's going to include Gentiles. You understand these words. Jews, God's called people. Gentiles, every other nation. So when we say Jew and Gentile, we can also be saying everybody. That's a broad scope. That's a broad scope. He's going to to reveal to them the the scope of the membership in the church, but also, also the purpose of the church. That is to reveal the wisdom of God for all to see. By the end of this sermon, I hope that phrase, that the church is to reveal the wisdom of God for all to see, means a lot more to you than it does right now. Because it can kind of just fly by. But these are two reasons that we are, as the church, to the praise of God's glory. Paul wants us to see these things so that we will better understand his prayer for us when we get to verses 14 to 21. Paul's laboring to enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may grow in the knowledge of God in Christ, which is what he prayed for us earlier at the end of chapter 1. And he begins with a little autobiographical information beginning in verse 2. Look again at verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now, we remember from Acts chapter 9 that Saul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians the Christian church, when Christ appeared to him and saved him by God's redeeming grace. Then an additional act of God's grace made him a steward of the mystery, Paul says. A mystery that Paul was both privileged and duty-bound to make known to the Gentiles. And Paul has already written briefly about this mystery in this very letter. Look at at Ephesians chapter 1, pick up in verse 9 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. God's plan, God's overarching plan, is for, in the fullness of time, everything in heaven and on earth to be summed up, to be united in Christ himself. He he spoke about it in chapter 1 beginning in verse 20. 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him. This is the power of God being worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is already seated right now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He's above everything and everyone, and he's the head of the church, which is his body. In chapter 2, beginning verse 6, Paul says that he has raised us up with him and seated us with him. That's us with Jesus in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Not only have we been made alive in Christ, which is a miraculous and glorious thing, but we too, because we are in Christ, who's in the heavenly places, are with him, in a sense, in those heavenly places. This is amazing stuff that we would not reckon on our own. Unless, unless Paul told us. Unless God, God told Paul so that Paul could tell us. So Paul says, now you know how I know these things. Now you know where my insights come from. I didn't make this stuff up, Paul says. They were given to me by the grace of God. By the Spirit of God. In fact, they have been given to Christ's apostles. And the New Testament prophets, he's not speaking about the Old Testament prophets, that was the former days. This is those at the time of the apostles through whom God revealed truths to and they spoke them. Remember the day of Pentecost, God poured out his spirits and your sons and your daughters will prophesy about me. It would have been a spectacular time to be around and hang out and listen to some preaching. It would have been amazing. Now here's the nature of that mystery again. I mean, we've been talking about this since the very first sermon in our series. Here's the nature of that mystery again. What has been revealed to Paul and the apostles in the New Testament was hidden from the prophets and the people in the Old Testament. What was known concerning the Gentiles in the Old Testament anyway? I mean, what was known? Well, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, made it known that God would bless all the nations of the world. Right? Through you, I will bless all the nations. That means Gentile nations. God would bless even the Gentiles in some way, to some extent. But they didn't know in what way particularly, or to what extent. Which is the mystery Paul's revealing. The way God would bless the Gentiles is to make them alive in Christ by faith in his gospel. That's the way that he would bless us. And the extent to which God would bless the Gentiles would be to bring them into his family with his Old Testament people, the Jews. More than that, they wouldn't just be the red-headed stepchildren in the room. More than that, God would make the Gentiles 100% co-equal members with 100% co-equal shares of the inheritance. That is blessing to a great extent. And so Paul refers to this mystery in general terms as the mystery of Christ. 
Here's the mystery of Christ. And the Holy Spirit himself revealed truths about Christ and the plan of God for his church to the apostles, for the apostles then to reveal to us, and, and Paul did it. Faithful Paul did it. How, how grateful we should be for the grace of God to give us his account. Now I want us to think for just a minute about the revelation of the mystery of Christ. Because I think in a very real way, we can see that the mystery was revealed when Christ actually came. When the Son of God appeared on earth. The mystery of Christ became manifest, not just now at Paul's preaching to the uh, Ephesians, but, but when Christ was born. The mystery of Christ became manifest. God was moving pieces on the chessboard, and his plan could be seen. And I, I think we might be helped just a little bit if we would use our, our sanctified imaginations. I want to be careful, but we want to use our sanctified imaginations just a little bit in thinking about this. It is God alone who is omniscient. It is God alone who knows everything. In agreement with me. It's only God. The angels, both the holy angels and the fallen angels, they cannot read the mind of God. Humans, you and I, we cannot read the mind of God. Everyone outside of the triune Godhead has to be told or shown by God what God is doing. Right? It's the only way. So, we might imagine the throne room of God nine months before the very first Christmas. Imagine yourself in the throne room of God nine months before the very first Christmas. We're just imagining now. So don't take this literally. But there's God on his throne. There are the angels, a word that means messenger, all queued up, right, like taxi cabs at the airport. And God says, next. Gabriel. It's Gabriel's turn. God says to Gabriel, do you see that little girl down there? His name, her name is Mary. I want you to go to her. I want you to go to Mary. And I want you to tell her this. Right? We, we sometimes think that everything in heaven knows everything about God and knows everything in God. And all of those beings in heaven are hearing for the very first time what's about to happen. Because they're not omniscient. They have to be told, or they have to witness it, just like us. And all of heaven is listening. <laughs> what is Gabriel going to go say to that woman, that, that little girl? Mary, what's he going to say? We can read all about it in Luke chapter 1 and 2. We can read exactly what the message of God was. You are going to bear a son through the Holy Spirit. You'll name him Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sin. And everyone in the spiritual realm heard it for the first time. And they responded in wonder and amazement and awe. 
They're listening to God saying, and so in a sense, the Spirit and the Son are there with the Father. You know, they're looking at God. He says, he says the Son is going to be born of that woman. And don't you think they look over at Jesus? And he nods, yeah. That's what's going to happen. They didn't know that all the time. Spiritual beings didn't know that all the time. They had to hear it and see it. And they watch, as we do, God's plan unfold in the form of real events. And they learn about it through words he speaks, just like we do. Now here's what's so ironic to me, and here's the reason why I give the illustration. Because Paul is revealing to the Gentiles that the mystery has really been revealed in Christ. But it's 2,000 years later. We have a New Testament understanding. We walked into church convinced, believing all along, that the Gentiles were part of the church. Of course we are. But we have to be convinced that what we have believed all along was once a mystery. That's, that's my job. Paul's job was to tell the, tell the Gentiles that, what was, that, that the mystery isn't still a mystery. It's been revealed. My job is to, is to teach you that what, what we understand is fully revealed was once a mystery. That it was not known. And that's what makes it amazing and awesome that God would include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That God would reach out into the Gentile nations and pull people into his family 100% fully vested. You see, this is no ho-hum stuff. The fact that God is revealing his plan to us proves that God has been gracious to us. That we would not take lightly the fact, as Paul wrote in chapter 1, that God has lavished the riches of his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight when he made known to us the mystery of his will, which Paul's written about briefly and we've briefly read. This is no home-home stuff. This is not just facts and data. Like those in the heavenly realms, we should wonder at such a mystery made known. And we should be amazed at God's plan for Christ and his church. And we should stand in awe of him. That's our response to this passage. And so in general, the mystery is Christ, but what's the specific piece of the mystery that Paul is revealing here in verse 6? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Not only is God saving repentant Jews, he's saving repentant Gentiles. Making Gentiles alive in Christ through faith in the gospel, but bringing Gentiles near. Those words should sound sweet to us. God is building Jew and Gentile together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Because of that, Paul's saying these things. This is Paul's emphasis. This is what he's emphasizing. Three times in one verse, Paul says, together, together, together. Did you see it? The mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's together. Members of the same body. That's together. And partakers of the promise. That's together. 
The mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs no longer without hope in the world, which is what they were in chapter 2. The mystery is that Gentiles are members of the same body, no longer strangers to the people of God. The mystery is that Gentiles are partakers of the promise, no longer separated and without God in this world. And all of this is in Christ. How many times have we read? I didn't go back and count. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You see, this is good news. This is all good news. Paul has a gospel. Paul has a good news to proclaim, which is the theme he returns to in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light from everyone what is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. It was a gracious act of God to reveal this mystery to Paul, and it is a gracious act of God to make the mystery known through Paul. That's all Paul feels about it. Paul considers it a great honor and a privilege to be made a servant of God. How's, how's your humility doing with that? How's your humility level doing? You're a servant. You're not in charge. We're servants. We do what we're told. What makes it wonderful to be a servant is who your master is. The value of being a servant of God is that we get to be servants of God. He says that he's been made a minister of the gospel, and it's a gift of grace. What a wonderful gift of grace, which is remarkable when you consider all the suffering that Paul would endure as Christ's apostle to the Gentiles, isn't it? The whippings, the beatings, the stonings, the left for deads outside of cities. But what's really interesting is that he describes the gift of God's grace as having been given by the working of his power. This gift of God's grace to him was done by the working of God's power. What does that mean? Paul always considered himself the chief of sinners. Because he so zealously and violently persecuted the church. The very body of Christ. It took nothing less than the power of God to transform Saul the persecutor into Saul the apostle. But he's just not talking about, or not just talking about, his conversion on the Damascus Road. It took that same power of God to make him a servant of the gospel. Not just to make him a servant of the gospel, but also to sustain him as a servant of the gospel. This is how we understand Paul's use of this word power here. Listen to what Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Do you hear that? It's the ongoing, sustaining power of God that is at work in Paul always. Just as it has been promised to be at work in all who believe and who love Christ. 
It was by His grace that God chose Paul. It was by His grace that God called Paul to serve him. It was by His grace that God empowered Paul to walk in the good works that he laid before Paul. God does the same for you and me. Your works are different from Paul's and maybe different from one another's in the room. But God has made you his servant, has empowered you to serve him well. He's given you grace for today. And so what is it that Paul preaches in verse 8? Look at what he preaches. He proclaims the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, no wonder he considers it a privilege. No wonder it's a gift of God's grace that he has this message for people who have not heard it and did not know God. The riches that sinners find in Christ are unfathomable. They're infinite. You can search and search and search, and you will never fully comprehend them. You will never fully plumb the depths. You will never fully mine them. Christ is filled with unsearchable riches. You know, that's a great thought to have in mind. That's a great thought to have in mind when you're sharing the gospel with others. Christ is a wealth of divine grace and glory which he lavishes on sinners who turn to him. Paul had that in mind. He just wrote about it. He says, my job is to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, which which are, to name but a few, redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses and sins, receiving of all wisdom and insight, adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God, along with, just a, here's a big catch-all, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and more, to infinity and beyond, right? The unsearchable riches of God. Endlessly more. That should be a great encouragement to you as you look people in the eye and say, do you know the unsearchable riches of Christ? I'd love to tell you about them. Paul is to preach the gospel so people can be made alive. And he is to bring to light what was a mystery but is now revealed as the plan of God for Christ's church. Which is, look at verse 10. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's pretty astounding. That's pretty astounding. The church, the universal church through all the ages, which includes every local church, is a display of the wisdom of God. In what way? The existence of the church as a body of reconciled Jews and Gentiles is evidence of God's wisdom. I know. We like to talk about the power of God. That's a pretty cool thing. And there are awesome examples in Scripture. I know we like to talk about the authority of God. Because it is high and above everything else 
and affects everything. Everything is under God's authority. Everyone is responsible to God. Those are good things, wonderful things, amazing things. But we, we probably don't look as fondly on the wisdom of God. Hey guys, let's get together and talk about the wisdom of God, shall we? We need to. We need to. We are evidence of God's manifold wisdom. Who else has a plan for breaking down the tallest dividing walls between people? Who? Who's been able to do it? Who else has a plan to put to death the enmity between people? Who? Who's been successful at that for any length of time? Who has a plan that successfully unites Jew and Gentile in peace? Not just to cease fire between enemies, but everlasting love for one another in one eternally united body. Only God has the manifold wisdom to reconcile people like that forever. And the church stands as evidence of God's manifold wisdom. We live Christ's command. Love one another as I have loved you. This is what you do to show that you're my disciples. We are seen as proof that God's plan works. And who does Paul say is watching? Who's watching the church to see the manifold wisdom of God? Who formerly did not know the extent of the manifold wisdom of God, but now does? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Man, I just wasn't expecting that. I'm reading through this, and I'm like, you know, who are, who are you? Who's, who's seeing the manifold witness of God in the church? Well, it's the, it's the outside. It's, those, it's those, those spiritually dead people out there, right? So that they'll, they'll hear about God and come to Christ. Well, yes, all that's true, but that's not where Paul goes here. Paul's stuck in this, this highway of the plan of God, the purpose of God to sum up all things in Christ, and this is what he says within that plan about the church, the people who've been saved. They're evidence of God's wisdom to people in the spiritual realm, to beings in the spiritual realm. Which actually makes total sense. Doesn't it? Remember our little exercise in sanctified imagination? Only God is omniscient. All the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are created beings, just like us. Well, not just like us, but in that way that they're created. And they have to be told the plan of God or they have to see it happen in order to know it. And when they look at the New Testament church, they see something they had not seen before. That the most separated peoples in the world, Jew and Gentile, no greater animosity among any peoples ever than Jew and Gentile they look down and they see Jew and Gentile reconciled in one new body. They see enmity turned to love. And they have to say, 
that can only be the wisdom of God. Because nobody else can do that. The faithful church of the Lord Jesus Christ is irrefutable evidence to those who are in the heavenly places whom you do not even see of the manifold wisdom of God. Who are those beings? Well, holy or evil doesn't matter. Peter tells us that angels long to look into the saving and reconciling work of God. You remember that in 1 Peter chapter 1? Holy angels see the church and the manifold wisdom of God and they praise and glorify God. We should too. Paul tells the Corinthians at the end of at the end of the Father's plan, he will destroy every rule and power and every authority that has set itself against God. So when fallen angels look on the church, they see the plan of God unfolding before them. And that God is uniting all things under Christ. And they realize, lo, their doom is sure. We too should see the church as evidence of God's plan to unite all things is advancing. It's advancing. We prove it by our love for one another and our worship of Christ and our gospel proclamation. It's the church who's on the offensive. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Makes total sense. And all of this is according to God's eternal plan and purpose. Go figure. Nothing is going to thwart the Lord's will. Nothing is going to frustrate the Lord's purposes. Nothing is going to stop God. His plan's happening all over the world. Nowhere in all of redemptive history will we see God resort to plan B. There is not a need for any contingency plans. No last-minute adjustments or fine-tuning. No change of purpose, because the first one didn't work out. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the realization of God's forever and unstoppable plan in Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. That's our reality. And so if you're not reconciled to God this morning. If you're still separated from Christ by your sin, then I want to appeal to you. I just want to appeal to you to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. If you see the wisdom of God in loving and reconciling people through the costly sacrifice of His own Son, for you, then make that change this morning. Turn from death. Turn to life. There's, there's no work for you to do. There's no status for you to gain. Stop trying to convince God that you're righteous and just receive the righteousness of God that he graciously gives to people like you. Because he does it all the time. Trusting Christ with your life is the best and wisest thing you'll ever do. In Christ, you will have peace. And more. And more. Look at verse 12. 
Here's God's purpose that is realized in Christ in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Boldness, access, confidence. Okay, that's incredibly encouraging this morning. (laughs) Those things are incredibly encouraging. It is God's purpose for every person in the church to have boldness and access and confidence in Christ. And so is that you? Is that you? Listen. The devil is one of the fallen angels who lives in the spiritual realm. In chapter 2, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. Because he has temporary limited power on earth to do his evil thing. And like the rest of the rulers in the heavenly places, he has observed the manifold wisdom of God to save sinners through the blood of Jesus and to make them his children. He knows it's real and he knows it's happening. The devil knows that he cannot change the eternal destiny of God's children. He can't do it. He just doesn't want you to know. He just doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to think along those lines. He doesn't want you to read Ephesians chapter 3. But now you know. Brothers and sisters, now you know. By the grace of God, what was formerly a mystery has been made known to you. You have irrevocable access to God by faith in Christ. You can be absolutely confident in God's victorious plan for his church. This church, by faith in Christ. Your saving faith was given by the Father. And so no one else can take it away. So, you have boldness in the faith. It is the purpose of God that we would live boldly in the gospel. And boldly pursue his plan for the church. To be evidence of the wisdom of God for those who are even unseen to us. This is what Paul's doing in his life. This is, this is a pretty autobiographical section of the letter, isn't it? It's what Paul's doing in his life, and, to be honest, it's landed him in prison. It's landed him in prison. And so we see that Paul has a concern that some might lose heart in this gospel mission because of his circumstance. Maybe we should be as bold as Paul, or maybe maybe we could hold back a little bit. Don't want to go to jail. Not at all. Paul won't have it. The gospel won't have it. Servants of Christ won't have it. Just before Paul prays for them in verse 14, which he's going to, which we're going to look at next week, he drives home that his suffering for the gospel has been the earthly means to enable them to experience the glory of God. That's what he says. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. It's your glory. It's your glory. 
Paul's not overstating his role in this. Say, wow, has he just got a big head or what's he doing there? No, he's not overstating his role in this. By the grace of God, Paul was privileged to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. He's ecstatic about it. Christ has given that very same commission to us, his church. Go and make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'm with you always. I'm with you always. And Paul's not overstating the result. Really? Glory? Is he just trying to sell us? No. He's trying to comfort us and encourage us in what's real and what's true. As believers in the church, we participate in the glory of God as his treasured possessions. Remember chapter 1? We are God's treasured possessions. He looks upon us as being his glorious inheritance because of the work that Christ did in us. The glorious, gracious work of saving us and uniting us together in the church. We experience his glory now, which, which is a glory to be fully realized on the last day. What is God's gospel plan for the church? It is that we would actively make known the manifold wisdom of God by living boldly in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would carry on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. See, we too have been given a stewardship of the gospel. We too have been called to minister the gospel. And it's also this, that in doing so, we wouldn't lose heart in this, knowing that we ourselves are evidence that God is currently, actively uniting all things in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have seen fit to make known to us your purpose and your plan. That we might understand the riches of your grace, the glory of your purpose, the love of our Savior, all of, which, all of which fill us with gospel-proclaiming love for one another. Lord, we pray that you would bless your people and that you'd be glorified through your church. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.